Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Wednesday, September 26th, and this is the true history of the MOOC. What a really fun evening we should be having. I'm not going to have everybody say hi at this point because uh, we'll get to hear from each of them very quickly, but thanks to our guests for being here. I don't think Inga or Rita are here yet. If they come in the room, please let me know and I'll promote them. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project. Thanks to Mighty Bell and Blackboard Collaborate for support. I am on this grand experiment, the Hack Your Education Tour, hackyoureducation.com, having a lot of fun and learning a lot. And uh, hope if you're interested that you'll send me a note or help create a group somewhere to talk about education. The Learning 2.0 conference recordings are all posted. They're at learning20.com. Um, and just a tremendous set of resources. Uh, coming up next week, can't believe it's happening so soon, the Future of Libraries, Libraries 2012, October 3rd through 5th, about 150 sessions, great keynotes, 24 hours a day for two days. Don't miss it. It is free. And then in November, the Global Education Conference. This is the third year, our five-day, 24-hour day event. We're still taking proposals to present at the Global Education Conference. This is not a global conference on education. It is a conference on global education. It's about connecting students and teachers with each other. We would love to hear from you if you think you have something valuable to, to teach us. Coming up on the Future of Education tomorrow night, can't think of a, a more interesting contrast, Thomas van der Ark on Getting Smart. And then next week, the Library 2.012 conference on October 9th, Blake Bowles on Better Than College. Denise Pope from Stanford on Challenge Success. Kirsten Olson on Wounded by School. Susie Voss on Bringing Innovation to School. This is new. Jamie McMillan on Legendary Learning, the Famous Homeschooler's Guide to Self-Directed Excellence. Should be really interesting. Anyway, lots coming up. I sure hope you can join us for some of them. They are all recorded. So if you miss them, you can watch the recordings either in full Blackboard Collaborate form or there is a podcast stream of MP3s. We heard from Ron Richard last night on Making Thinking Visible. Really a brilliant book and a set of ideas. Uh, lots of fun. Uh, Nikhil Goyal, uh, the student author on his book One Size Does Not Fit All. Uh, Zach Malamed in a student voice panel responding to the Education Nation student panel. Bob Glitter and Dana McCauley talked to us about place-based education. Anyway, lots that's there, over 300 sessions, hopefully something that you find of value. I'm going to give you a chance now to indicate where you're listening from. Feel free to put them in the, put your location, time, temperature in the chat. You can click on the star icon to the left of the map and then click again on the map. It gives us a visual sense. North America, Australia, India, New Zealand. I'm going to check now for Inga and Rita. I don't see. I'm going to check my email. <coughs> if they come in, do let me know. <coughs> Somebody there from Scotland, maybe? 
Mexico. Wherever you are listening from, or if you're listening to the recording, thanks so much for taking the time. We're glad you're here. There is a Mighty Bell space for this session tonight. Mighty Bell is Gina Bianchini's newest um, web service. And let me give you that link. Tim is the co-creator of Ning. This is a curation and conversation tool. The full disclosure is that I do consulting work for Gina, as I did for Ning. But I really love what she does, and I think you'll find that I put a whole bunch of links on MOOCs in that Mighty Bell space. So hopefully you can find something of interest there after the recording. And you can continue the chat. Okay, so uh, who in this group might do well to kind of start us on the discussion of the history of the MOOC? Dave, are you the right guy? I'll take it. <clears throat> um, I think that uh, I mean you could easily have Stephen in here, but I clicked the button first, so I get to go. Um, I think, and for me at least, I had a little bit more of a bird's eye view than Stephen does. He was trapped in the middle of it. He can clarify any of the things that that I'm saying that aren't accurate, and uh, I'll see if I can't remake history as we go along. So in 2008, um, the university. Well, I mean, let's step back for a second here. MOOCs or so-called open online courses, connective learning, all this stuff is not entirely new. You know, we've had giant courses online, we had giant correspondence courses for years, we've had people teaching by TV for years, there's all kinds of history behind that. Let's leave that aside for a second and, and just put a nod to all the great work and all the crazy things that people have done over the years. You know, 19th century, we've got people with thousands of people coming to their classes. All that stuff is true and all that stuff is there. The MOOC proper, the stuff that we've been working on for the last four years, really starts in the, let's say, spring of 2008. George and Stephen are planning a course called CCK08, the connective, uh, what's it called, CCK, something, something knowledge, connective knowledge, it's not like connectivism anyway. And, and they have a course at the University of Manitoba. There's 25 students registered, and they decide that they want to make it open, invite everybody to come in. Thank you, Stephen invite everybody to come in and anybody who wants to sign up can sign up. There are 25 people taking it for course credit who paid for the class who are local or who are taking that through the University of Manitoba, but all the rest of these people out there are able to come and join. A little bit through the summer, there's 400, there's 800, there's 1,000, there's 1,200, 1,500 people registering and, and it's just all of a sudden it's, it's something different is starting to happen. I invited uh, Stephen and George, this is where I come in, I invited them to come on to EdTech Talk and just tell us, tell us exactly what was happening and what they thought the potential was and what they thought the implications were. And we started sort of talking around what things could be different when things are scaled. I mean, most of us agree that bigger is different and certainly I think with the MOOCs that's true. Uh, we expected a couple dozen, exactly. And then once those numbers eventually capped out, I think we ended up with 23 or 2400. I came into that discussion, I think, to the best of my knowledge, I coined the term much to my eventual, uh, the much to, it's led to four years of taunting, really. I had a guy actually tell me, uh, I got a tweet a couple of weeks ago, for, yeah, thank you, Audrey, who said, a guy who said, I wish I could kill the guy who named this a MOOC. So there's been a lot of that, um, but we, I ended up uh, being fortunate enough to be asked to do a little bit of the negotiation on Fridays for that session, so I was kind of involved in the first one, but Stephen and George did all the work and all the conceptualization and all that stuff. So I get way too much credit. But anyway, because all I said was MOOC. 
But realistically, what happened is that they started a new way of trying to pull all this together. Steven's Grasshopper software, the newsletter every day, the way that we went about doing it, they really did create a new way of approaching the Internet, which to me, the MOOC comes from the Internet. It's the Internet, so it's one of the ways in which you can use the facility of the Internet to do education differently. Um, and the ways that, I mean, were there ways in which there were mistakes and ways that it can get better? Definitely, but the the particular flavor of the approach, the openness of the approach, and the ways in which the people who were involved in that course were able to structure the curriculum, I think it was the first of the, the first time that that's been done in that particular way. And to me, from my perspective, it's a way of saying, look, the internet has an amazing, amazing connective possibilities. We all know that working together is a way for us to learn. But the MOOC is a chance of saying, for the next 10 weeks, we're going to focus on this one thing. We're all going to put aside all the other things that we care about and focus on this, get together, connect, and learn together along a certain set of paths. And I think that it's really the first way, first time that that was done in that kind of organized way. So from there, we did four or five other MOOCs. Um, and then, I mean, Alec certainly um, in probably the year before 2008 had done some open course stuff. I think Alec's stuff, particularly initially, was far more focused on his students at the University of Regina. Uh, and certainly the stuff that David Wiley did was the same way, but Wiley always went through everything that came in from the students. He was very much about still being the, the, the facilitator for everyone, and that, there's no way that that happens in the MOOCs that we've done. So I think those are dis distinct. DS106 uh, comes out later with the crazy, crazy people who run that. Some of them are in the chat room here. Uh, and definitely nod to them. And they've taken that a step further where realistically the curriculum of something like DS-106, which is another flavor of MOOC as much as um, CogDog wouldn't like me calling it a MOOC maybe, is really more about create organized or semi-organized, prompted creativity at least. Lee Blackall is another good example. Somebody mentioned him at, at Otago. They did another stuff there, another group of things there, and that actually started a year or two before as well. Again, I would think that the flavor of what they did was slightly different, uh, but certainly uh, part of that sort of nascent approach where we are all sort of going, wow, we've got all this internet, the connective technologies are a lot stronger now than they were a few years ago. There's a lot more, there are a lot more people on the net who are trying to actively do connective things with it, the connective technologies, things like Twitter, um, things like Skype had become things that people were used to, and I think the time is really ripe for that to happen, and you see lots of pockets of it all over the place. From 2010, 2011, uh, or actually it, the really late 2011, all of a sudden MITx comes out, and then right after that you get the Coursera, Udacity, all the rest of this stuff. Somehow, and I blame Audrey Waters, somehow the word MOOC gets appropriated into this discussion, I think potentially accurately. <laughs> Potentially accurately because, again, all of the Coursera Udacity stuff is directly related to how the Internet can change education. I think there are some real connections there. There are some real ways in which those things have a lot to do with each other. Summer of Learning is another good example that happened this summer. It was actually a corporation that started this, the stuff that Google's been doing this summer. There are lots of stuff out there where you're seeing the possibility of the web 
really impacting education. There are distinct differences between those things, I think, but now we're looking at it and people are seeing, seeing combinations of the Coursera open stuff connected to Pearson, connected to face-to-face -face testing, connected to PLAR stuff, and I think in the next year, we're going to see people getting full course credit for stuff they've done online through PLAR and a whole bunch of other stuff. And yes, Coursera and Curosa have a lot. Those words are very close. I assume he's behind the whole thing. There's my introduction. That was brilliant. You did a great job. So there's, there's a difference between hacking and kind of moving something toward mass adoption. And lots of industries go through that, right? I mean, if you, you uh, cobble something together and then somebody else finds a way to really bring it to the masses. But it feels to me like the story here is a little bit more complex than that. Um, Stephen, there's there's several elements to what you and then the rest of the gang have done that feel like they're getting lost in this new version of the MOOC, um, so that it's not just this transition from hacking. Um, do, do you want to kind of kick us off there with some of the ways in which these new MOOCs are missing some of the elements that were so critical to you? So that was directed to Stephen Downs, but. Sorry about that. It helps if I uh, press the button. <laughs> uh, let's think about what we did in connectivism and connective knowledge that was different. Because, you know, there, there were things that were done before us. Uh, Alex had done his open course uh, with the Illuminate sessions and, and uh, the website. David Wiley had done what came to be called the Wiley Wikis, which reflected education's unending tendency of attaching people's names to things. Um, but, you know, there are large open online courses. Uh, I linked back to one. There was an email course. It was, uh, it was some kind of introduction to the Internet. Uh, I forget exactly what it was called. It was offered by email. So the whole idea of large open online courses existed well before what we did. And, and we've always been very clear about that. Uh, what we did in connectivism and connective knowledge is we distributed the environment. Now, what I mean by that is instead of having the course located in one central location, like a wiki or an LMS or something like that, we used materials and resources from all over the internet and the course was designed as a way to connect them. In the first instance, what we wanted to do is reuse open learning materials, and, but not to reuse them by bringing them in and making them part of our stuff, but just by providing a link to them so that people could go out and read that resource wherever it happens to be. But in the second instance, we also had course participants participate by creating blog posts or whatever in their own environment, in their own blogger blog or WordPress blog or whatever. And we would link to them. We would aggregate the links to their materials and make those available. So we had this decentralized structure. And also, just to take that a step further, and this is all, again, still in CCK08, we encouraged them to set up their own activities, their own discussions, whatever, 
outside the course, and and they did. Uh, there were three separate second life groups that were set up, uh, one in English and two in Spanish. Uh, there were Google groups set up. Uh, there were a whole bunch of things set up that were outside our environment entirely. And over time, I began to aggregate some of that as well. Uh, people used Twitter. People used Facebook. They still use these things in the connectivist courses. So what made our course massive is the fact that it could be massive. Uh, it could be massive because it was distributed and we didn't end up these bottlenecks that made massiveness such a terrible thing. And let me be clear, actually, there was a case where we did run into that. Our first connectivism course used the Moodle LMS as well as uh, a blogging environment and Grasshopper for all the aggregating in that. And, and Moodle, of course, has its own internal discussion. And we, at the beginning of the course, we had several hundred people, several thousand people, but I think the actual number is several hundred trying to use this discussion forum all at once. And it was a horrible mess. And then we got into discussion forum wars where people tried to dominate the discussion. And it was, you know, it, was, it collapsed on its own weight. And if you go back and you look at the CCK archives, you find me reacting to that by telling people, get out of the discussion, put your comments on your own blog, we'll aggregate them, we'll bring it in. So, you know, it, it was attempting to deal with this large number of people moved us off the LMS and into this distributed environment. But that wouldn't have been possible if we hadn't been set up to support a distributed environment in the first place. Coursera and all the rest of them, Udacity, Udemy, and all of that, they don't have this element. Uh, they're still in mass broadcast mode, you know, see some videos, do some automatically marked uh, tests, etc. But they don't have this network of distributed resources outside the centralized course site. And, you know, and so in that way, they're massive, they're open, uh, and all of that, but you know they they hit kind of limits as well. Uh, they they hit limits in the support that can be offered. Uh, they hit limits in the interaction that can take place. Although you know they are and will be MOOCs because one of the things we've discovered, and we saw this in some of the other MOOCs that developed, people will set up these external networks anyways. Uh, with or without the compliance of the, or, or with or without the support of the course operators. We even saw that in that Stanford AI course. You can find discussions about that Stanford AI course all over the internet. They're not directly related to the course, but over time, as they offer these massive courses, you'll see them supporting and bringing in this net, internet-wide discussion. I'll, I'll leave it there and, and Steve, I'll uh, turn it back to you. Thanks, Stephen. So uh, I love what we're distributed, and it feels as though in distributing the course over the web, you're sort of modeling the agency that is allowed to the 
to the participant and the kind of growth that would be involved and their own connecting with each other. Um, and it certainly feels like in the sort of new big university MOOCs, uh, while that may be happening off-center, it's not a part of the core course. And is part of that the uh, tied to, to assessment? Alec, would that be a reasonable way to kind of look at the um, the reason for two different trajectories is that ultimately Stanford and, and others are looking for some way to assess centrally? No, I'm not sure if that's my uh, the greatest uh, jumping point off for me, but I'll, I'll give it a shot. Um, I do want to go back to um, what Stephen mentioned as well. Um, the, the course that I ran and I've run for about four or five years uh, certainly wasn't the massive um, uh, size of uh, of the ones uh, with Siemens and, and Downs and Carnet, um, and certainly not the, the scale of the uh, the other uh, the new ones, Coursera, et cetera. Um, but one of the uh, main tenets, I think, was and it was also the decentralized piece, which I think was uh, really important. If I sound a lot of breath because I'm running around with a laptop uh, chasing after my two-year-old, so uh, it's an odd <laughs> sensation. My, on mine. Um, wasn't nearly as centralized, I think, in many ways as, say, the CCK08 one, but one of the main tenets, I think, around uh, that was really the idea of, one, uh, certainly using as many free or open source uh, software, uh, as much as that was possible. I really, when it came down to it, was I wanted to use tools that any teacher could use, that anyone could use. In fact, we didn't even use Illuminate or Blackboard the very first year. we did some really crazy hack to Ustream and Skype and three other types. I think I have a, a popular post that uh, kind of describes the process, but it was really quite something at the time. But there was a really important piece, I think more than anything, and it still exists today, uh, was that students, as Stephen mentioned, that students should be in their own spaces. And then at some point, there's some aggregation. Although I had most of my course materials online and a wiki, um, everything, really funneled through whether it was delicious resources. Now I think we use Digo. Um, the aggregation, we taught students how to create bundles. I don't think there was bundles back then, but the idea of them being able to subscribe to each other via Google Reader. And, but again, certainly have people uh, um, blogging in their own spaces. Um, the other piece that I think was different than mine, and this kind of goes into the assessment piece, which I think is really quite important. Oh yeah, Google bundles now work again, by the way. Uh, Google never they just decided to work all of a sudden. Google never really paid attention to it closely, but they, they work now. Um, the, uh, the other part that was very different about my class is I only had really 20 core students, and those were, grad, those were graduate students from the University of Regina that I really, <laughs> she's around here somewhere, uh, that I really focused on. Uh, the idea of my course was less about creating a MOOC or creating an open course, but it was just basically allowing my students to be actually uh, tutored and mentored by people around the world. So part of it was my philosophy of having things open and letting a graduate class be open. So it was really focused on 20 graduate students, and we decided at some point just to bring everyone else in. Um, but as the course developed over four iterations, we decided let's see if we can make some of these people work and help graduate students and mentor them in different ways. So some of them weren't as interested in the course, but they were really part of it. They supported people on Twitter. They supported people in different ways. Uh, so I never really got that big. It was never meant to be big. But if you think about the metrics at that time, it was about 200 other outsiders uh, versus the 20 students that I really focused on. 
And but when it comes down to it, it was ideally up to about 10 mentors per student if you broke it down by students. But uh, ideally, it ended up being much different than that uh, in some ways. But it was it was really an interesting focus. But again, my core, and this is something that I've been really struggling with in the last while because I'm looking to run a type of MOOC with no core, with no graduate students, with people taking it for other reasons. Um, you know, without the assessments, without the carrots, uh, for instance. And it was really easy to keep those 20 students engaged because they had to be. And that's the part that I'm really struggling with now is in moving to this different model where no one actually has a course. And certainly that's been proven by some of the bigger courses where there are no credits or there are no, uh, or there are perhaps alternate assessments. Um, but I think that's really important. But the mentorship model has been core to the one that I've done. Um, and, but of course, I think as I mentioned with Stephen as well, I think the alternate, or sorry, the uh, distributed nature of these courses is so so incredibly important. Again, that gives the connectedness connectedness moves uh, a different edge in terms of what could actually be learned in many different ways. So anyway, that's my piece. I'm gonna keep on running around after my two-year-old. That's sort of a, a classic moment here in whaling art history. Is you is the visual, the mental image of you chasing a two-year-old holding your laptop and responding to us. So Inga and Carol, uh, both of you, would either of you like to kind of weigh in at this point in terms of the history and some of these uh, different ways of looking at um, MOOCs? And I'll let you either just grab the mic or raise your hand. Carol, there you go. I see your mic is on. Okay. Um, I'll turn my video on briefly because most people don't see me because there I am reflected in my student in the lens, um, which is part of my philosophy is being a reflection of all of my students and what I learned from them. <coughs> Excuse me. And one of the joys of being a participant in the MOOCs as well as being a developer uh, and facilitator of the MOOCs is the connected learning. Um, I find that to be absolutely amazing. The content is not the primary um, driver of the learning. It is the connections, the networks, the learning how to use different technologies, becoming comfortable with them, and moving from that point on. What I like is that the participants also have the opportunity to shape their learning and shape the direction that the course might be going. Um, what Dave, Alec, and, and Stephen have done is absolutely amazing, and I have stolen from them shamelessly. Uh, Stephen has been a great support. I use Grasshopper in the MOOCs that, that uh, we have worked with. Betty Hurley Duff Gupta has been my collaborator on this, and she's somewhere online here. Um, what I've really enjoyed about it is the fact that not only am I learning, but the students are learning. We learn together. We learn around one another. Um, beyond that, I think the fact that the students literally have to jump in and learn to swim. What I've seen as the results is that they learn how to be more critical thinkers. They learn how to think better on their feet. They learn to be more reflective, and that's really joyous for me. And I will say that in the one MOOC that I started last year, and which incidentally is still running, um, we had originally nine or ten credit-seeking students plus one graduate student. 
Um, it sort of ran this summer. I had a few credit-seeking students, but I also have participants from the outside who stuck with it from last fall. And this semester, September, I started again with nine more credit-seeking students and a few new people who are coming on board. So that's been my experience. I want to shut my video off now because I think people have seen enough of me. Um, and basically, I have just found it a wonderful learning experience. And I, I cannot thank um, Dave, Alec, and Steven enough for their helping me find a way of learning that replicates how we learned growing up. And that, for me, was the greatest joy. And then trying to create a learning journey for other people as well. And I think I'll pass it on to Inga, who's done some really amazing stuff. Thanks. So Inga, we didn't have your tester microphone, but to turn your mic on, you click on the talk button at the top left. So um, I totally agree. <clears throat> Sorry, it's my mor morning voice, so morning European voice at that. Um, I totally agree with Carol that the idea and the natural flow of a MOOC is something to be very grateful for, for all the pioneers like Dave, like uh, George, and like Alec and Stephen, of course. And the thing I really like about it is to get people communicating with each other in a dialogue, in the which I think is especially fantastic if you want to get some expert learning going on. Because for adults, in many cases, if you are in specialized into something or you want to specialize in something, you already have that big amount of expertise, maybe in another field, uh, well, talking from, from my own uh, MOOC experiences. But even if, if the fields between the adults don't really match up, because of the MOOC and because of the openness and the option to, to be willing to create spaces for emergence or emergency or, or the emerging ideas principle, I think it is, it's just great. I never, I never in my wildest dreams could think that people would start partnerships, for example, or would start and join hands one, uh, like this year in the MOOC I'm, uh, I started giving Mobi MOOC or a, a massive, well, I wouldn't call it massive, but there, there were like, uh, 600, 700 people, but it's an open online course more than anything else. And in fact, uh, people started their own research and development departments. Others have started the European partnership uh, collaboration. Others have joined hands voluntarily to get some mobile learning projects from the ground uh, up. And it seems to work very well, where in the more transformative courses like Udacity and uh, Coursera, yeah, you, you actually just stick to the course. There is less uh, openness for getting new ideas out. So I totally agree <laughs> uh, that it's wonderful.
So George, you're here and I'm major moderator. I had originally put you on the list and then I went back through my emails and saw that you had sort of politely declined over the busy September. So I'm going to have to grab a picture of you and put it up here. But did you want to just watch or would you like to contribute? Okay. <laughs> so I'll ask this question of the panel and we're all laughing. It's got to be Dave Cormier who is doing all this drawing because we can see the little pencil icon. <laughs> Uh, um, is it too broad a brush to compare the MOOC work that you all have done with the kind of um, Coursera and, and, and big university MOOCs? Is it too broad a brush to see in that difference uh, sort of a potentially looming conflict between two different viewpoints of education? Would anybody like to take that? Well, if everybody's going to be shy, um, this is Dave Cormier here. Um, yes and no. Um, I, I don't think they're entirely conflicting um, in their results. I think, as I said in the chat room and Stephen alluded to in his description, I think you're seeing pockets of MOOCish, what we would call MOOCishness inside of the, the well, what I would call an ex-MOOC inside of the Coursera sort of stuff. They're rallying points. Anytime you've got something where you've got a rallying point and people are able to come together. I mean, you can't stop the networking from happening. The biggest problem I think that we've had with MOOCs particularly as you start to, to go out with them is people aren't accustomed to them yet. The more that happens, I think the more we're going to see practices develop. So I think that there's going to be a lot more overlap as we go forward. Um, already we're seeing more collaborative stuff and interactive stuff coming into the language around uh, the ex-MOOCs. Uh, and by that distinction, XMOOCs being Coursera, Udacity, giant, single location, not distributed in the way that Stephen described earlier. Um, and I think we're going to see more and more of that happening. And certainly as the accreditation continues to get increasingly distributed, you know, you've got, there's the formal Pearson stuff, which is what it is. And then there are now schools are coming along online and going, so you're saying that we could just say, we offer accreditation and we could come up with some kind of PLAR way, prior learning acquisition, or some kind of other way. And that's actually the model from Otago, I don't remember. It's the PLARing of the course that was the magic of the Otago model that was done by, um, uh, what's his name from Otago? Somebody will put the name in the chat room here. What they did is they taught the course and then allowed people to challenge for the course at the end of the course, which is really, really nice. They had 70, I think, in that first run. But as the accreditation model continues to be distributed, the courses will get more and more, I think, collaborative as people realize the only thing they need to do is understand what's going on and then they can challenge for credit in whatever institution they, they like. And I can't imagine, I really can't imagine that there won't be 30, 50, 100 institutions all around the world in the next two years who are going to give you ways to just go in and challenge. I mean, Western Governors has been doing it for 10 years. So I think we're going to see more and more of that and I think that's going to pull them together. So um, there's clearly not a well-defined revenue strategy for these universities, or at least if there is, I'm not fully aware of it. There seems to be some amount of, uh, as Audrey described it, fear of missing out. Um, and Dave, as you sort of painted that vision, I'm not sure I see the benefit to Stanford or Harvard or MIT to being the ones to hold these 
especially after uh, sort of the open courseware statistics have come out and shown and who's actually using them. Um, is there a good model for these large universities, or, or is this a case of people just kind of jumping on the bandwagon, do you think? And again, I would open that up to anybody who would like to respond. Yeah, I, I think it's a bit of both. Uh, I think that the large universities are trying to forestall a bit the next logical development. And if you can give me a, a blank slide, I'll illustrate for you what the next logical development is. Uh, what you have is uh, the MOOC in the center. So there it is, right? Uh, for example, CCK or, or AI or whatever. And right now, the model is you have something like Stanford, right? And so there you have Stanford. And you have the MOOC. And everybody's going to the MOOC and taking the Stanford course. But where the model is going to go is you have different institutions. So instead of just Stanford, uh, you have Otago. Uh, you have uh, Athabasca. Athabasca. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, you have uh, Indira Gandhi. Uh, you know, you, you have uh, Schlepp, I don't know, or, and, and whoever, right? And what's happening is they share this same online environment in the middle into which anyone can join. But then each of them offers their own credentialing their own way. So people go into the MOOC, do what they do, and then they get the Athabasca credential or the Otago credential or the Stanford. If Stanford only offers a certificate, well, maybe you go to Athabasca and you can use your work in the MOOC as evidence for a degree or at least a course credit from Athabasca. This is the model. And where the, the revenue is, is in the credentialing, right? Athabasca says, we will recognize your work in the MOOC but there will be conditions and naturally you pay a fee. And the fee is for the assessment as opposed to for the learning. That's where I think this is going. So Stephen, uh, it seems like that's kind of a losing proposition. It's hard to imagine that they can replace sort of the high revenue of um, students on campus with the very low revenue, but maybe that's assuming that you have a high quantity of students in these MOOCs and so paying more. But I'm not sure that makes sense to me. Is there actually, do you think, this kind of rational thought behind it for the universities? Uh, do you think they're thinking about it clearly? Well, look at it. There's, there's a couple ways of looking at it. Uh, for the, let's be clear. For the university, it means lower revenues per student. For the students, that's great. Really understand this. So you have to, you can't miss that point, right? For students, this this low cost, you know, free access to the materials, free access to the course, low cost evaluation. This is outstanding. This is fabulous. This is what students have been wanting for like generations. Uh, it's the next step in open education. From the point of view of the provider of the MOOC, it's also a good deal, especially if 
you can convince Athabasca and Otago and Stanford, etc., to help pay some of the cost of hosting this MOOC. Uh, you can also use this large collection of people in the MOOC to sell value-added services. Think of it if you're a publisher, right? You used to publish a textbook that would be used by all of these institutes. Now you're publishing a MOOC online that is used by all of these institutes. And what you're doing is you're offering a freebie, but with value-added services. You might offer private tutoring. Uh, there's, I saw something today that uh, talked about a publisher. I think it was uh, Elsevier offering free open textbook as a plain PDF, but if you want the full-featured ebook, you have to pay a bit of money to them. Uh, the universities, Athabasca, say, or whomever, um, they're not getting high tuitions per student, but they're getting revenue for assessment. A lot of their costs are gone. Uh, you know, they don't need to produce and distribute materials anymore, which is for Athabasca, it's a major cost. Um, and and you're, you're doing the actual hands-on assessment with individual students in whatever way you think is best for you. It's a different model. Uh, whether they make more money or less money uh, is open, you know, it's going to vary from institute to institute. But in general, through history, you know, when you, you take something that's really expensive and makes a lot of money for providers and you make it a lot cheaper, you end up making even more money for providers. So I think lower the cost per student and you really increase revenues because you're getting so many students. That's what I think the model will be. If you don't mind me jumping in, Steve. Um, yep. The, the other part of this here is the data. There's incredible value in having, I mean, particularly if you've got the infrastructure and that infrastructure is being paid for by foundations anyway. Yeah, so if you get a $60 million investment from somebody and then you're going to go ahead and do um, work in, I mean, in India where, you know, they're looking to train another 500 million people in the next nine years and you're looking at the foundation structures about to pay for your infrastructure and stuff. If you have 10 million students who are all working on the same kinds of things, there are things that you can learn about that process. There are ways that, this is how Google makes their money, right? It's just having people's data. And I think that there's incredible value in that if you're the kind of people who can work at scale. Now, for my institution of 5,000 people, that's not going to be why we're getting involved in it. But I think when you look at people who do work at a different scale, who do work at a, at a massive scale and who have the, the kind of institutional resources to be able to analyze and do stuff with that data, I think that there's real value there as well. I mean, there's a reason why giant corporations give you free things with little sort of access cards. It's because they want to know about the things that you do. And I think that that's going to be immensely valuable going forward, particularly for those people who think that education is something that can be filled with checkboxes. If you see the world that way, I think that uh, there's real potential there. So I do want to make sure we have a little bit of time for Q&A here. But before we go there, um, what role does the providing of uh, the networking between the students or study groups or even uh, physical meetups uh, is that, uh, what role does that play in the XMOOCs? And is there a different need in an XMOOC for that kind of interaction than there was, that there is or was uh, in the CMOOCs because of the degree of agency and, and, um, and connectivism uh, that was established there? 
And again, that's for anybody. I saw, I saw something just the other day. Uh, I forget where it was. I always forget where these things are. Um, but you can probably find it in Google. And what it, what it said basically is that the number one predictor of success in Harvard, aside from getting into Harvard, is the creation of study groups. And I think that if we look at, say, Stanford AI, we'll find that the number one predictor of success in the Stanford AI MOOC is creation of joining of study groups in the Stanford AI. It doesn't matter, <laughs> Jim, yeah. I No, I don't think it is in a well daily. I thought maybe, but anyhow. Uh, you know, I, I think, you know, it doesn't matter whether Stanford offers this or not. Uh, if they're smart, they do because, you know, they get access to all that data and that. But, uh, you know, it doesn't matter whether Stanford offers it or not. It's going to be a major part of the learning in this MOOC. There's no way around that. Can I add just a short comment on the MOOCs, whether, uh, no matter which type of MOOC you look at, CMOOCs or XMOOCs, it does um, keep coming from a dominant, more English-speaking um, side. And as such, I feel that there is, of course, a shift uh, going on in uh, MOOCs or in the delivery of content, which is even happening even more now than it was in the past. If you look at open educational resources, a lot of them are in English, but that, uh, I think, can result in an extra digital divide with minority groups or different language groups being a little bit left uh, behind. That's all I want to say. Interesting. Uh, okay, so we have about uh, 15 minutes left. I did want to make sure that we had a chance to ask questions. Uh, if you posted a question in the chat, I probably have missed it, but feel free to post it again or you can raise your hand. That's the uh, third icon over in the participant box. It's a hand and you can raise it and we'll give you the microphone. Um, <laughs> Mook fries. How funny. Um, and actually, made me think that there, you know, Dave was saying that there's a market for the accreditation. I also wonder if there might not be sort of an interesting side market in um, the kind of study groups or, or um, connecting, especially in physical connecting in different cities. Um, while we're waiting, for, okay. So where did MOOCs where did MOOCs actually come from? So I think Dave answered that at the beginning of the show that he, he he'll take credit for having created the name. But if you wanted more than that, blame. But if you want more than an end, please feel free to uh, to drill down on it. I'm a little curious about the lack of, of professional generosity or recognition uh, by the XMOOCs of the CMOOCs. But is that just my limited perspective? Do you feel like uh, Coursera and others have, have pointed back to the roots in a thoughtful way? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, and that's because that's the way these, these institutions operate. Uh, if you look through 
the history of this stuff, um, and this is a pattern that's been repeated over and over and over. Um, you know, look at, uh, for example, the uh, the open learning management system that became MIT Sakai. Look at Open Archives Initiative that became pretty much un unaccredited, uh, became DSpace. Uh, look at uh, learning design that was uh, created by Rob Coper, which was basically appropriated by IMS to become learning design, uh, you know, and so on. So that's what they do, right? Um, they they don't credit, and and that's just the way they operate. Yeah, George Siemens is making an interesting point about kind of the Stallman versus the free software versus the open source software movement, and kind of um, what people would describe as the the practical realities of uh, adoption and expansion based on how people work, and that would imply that the that the kind of connectivism that's associated with the CMOOCs is sort of a second, will always be kind of a secondary narrative. Can we see a path here where, um, Steve, Stephen, as you've described this um, central space that everybody's working in, where the connectivism model could become the primary model? Is that, are we at a point in history where that might happen? Well, yeah, the connectivism model will be the primary model. Just on the open source installment thing, that's another example. There were all kinds of open source initiatives, and then someone from Berkeley comes along and <clears throat> invents it, uh, and uh, then it now exists. Uh, but, you know, it didn't originate there. It's just, it's credited there. Uh, no, look at the picture I've drawn. I've been busy drawing here. You see the X MOOCs in the center. The X MOOC, that's the content nexus, if you will. And that's as far as they've gotten. These X MOOCs have to grow out. They have to grow into that network because they can't sustain simply as, you know, content and automated testing. There, there's a limit to what they can do. They have to extend that word. They, they have to grow to become CMOOCs, uh, but it's hard to do. I mean, it took years to write Grasshopper, and they're trying to do this stuff in like six months or whatever. It, it's hard to set up this kind of network so that it works, but they will do that over time. I think there's no question. Uh, but they'll do it in an actual proprietary sort of way, so they're tying into Facebook and Twitter and all the rest. And actually, I'll put those on this diagram now. So we haven't really talked about the definition of open, but Audrey has been blogging about this and talking about it a lot. And does it, um, how important is it to be specific about what open means? And are we even able to be specific? I think the danger always, this is Dave again, I think the danger always is to get into some kind of semantic debate about things like this. Um, there's no real way for us to nail down definitions like open. Um, I know what I mean by it, kind of, and I've been thinking about it for a long time, and it's still kind of fuzzy, really, in my head. Uh, could I give a definition if held up against the wall? Probably, but I'm not sure how helpful it is. Um, these 
discussions end up being, in, in, in our day and age, end up being decided in the media. I've had people in the streets here in Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, ask me if I've heard of these MOOC things. Um, but it has nothing to do with any of the work that, that I've done, however little I've done, however much I've written on the coattails of my betters. Um, and I don't think that open is any different. I mean, I still fight for the things that I believe in openness and how important I think it is. But the actual debate about the definition, I think, is one of those things that just creates sides. It doesn't actually bring people in. Any other thoughts about that? I mean, that's the, being decided by the media is an intriguing way to look at that. But it does feel like there are times when it's really appropriate to say, okay, you're calling that open, but it's really not open. I'd say we're getting more of that from the open community than anywhere else. Uh, the Creative Commons trying to divide things into licenses that support free culture and licenses that don't. Uh, the way I, I define it in a very rough and ready way, and if you push me on it, I'll refuse to distinguish further. Uh, free or, and open. Open means anyone gets in, and free means you don't have to pay. And uh, so I think that's the, the sense that most people understand, and the rest is for lawyers. Um. Isn't it true also that the connectivist MOOCs had a commitment to using open open um, content as well as being open to anyone? Well, with the practicality, right? <laughs> we didn't have any money, and and we weren't about <laughs> to charge students money, uh, and and you know there was the method of linking to the content and. We can only really practically link to open content. I support what uh, Stephen just said, and also it helps students or participants uh, to also bring their own content into it uh, by keeping it open. They don't feel quite as inhibited about bringing their blog posts and other materials that they find into the MOOC that other people can then build upon. Dave, am I right in remembering kind of the six points of the MOOC from you, and I couldn't say where it was. But uh, personally, from your standpoint, is open just about that it was cheap and available, or wasn't there a sense that, that it was actually kind of a part of the ethos? I'm terrifyingly passionate about it being part of the ethos. Um, I, when I say that I don't think we're going to be able to, we shouldn't fight over the definition of open, I don't mean that we shouldn't accuse other things of not being open. So, uh, yeah, and there are definitely parts of, of how to succeed in a MOOC that I've talked about, and maybe that's what you're thinking about. To me, openness and the value of it is openness. I take it even a step further and to say it's openness of curriculum and that fundamentally the learning process is something that happens to be negotiated. It's not something that is transferred. It's not, it's not, I mean, the power interactions are still there between the parties who are the people who are leading the discussion and the people who have cultural capital in different ways. But it really shakes out that hierarchy and allows people who are students of a course to actually be part of the creation of content, to be part of moving a, um, a field in a given direction to actually integrate and be part of a real negotiated discussion inside of a particular context which to me is what learning actually is. 
And that's where the openness really comes in. Is if I say, no, if, I, if I come out to the start of a course, you look at all the experts. The start of the course, they tell you what it is you're supposed to learn. If you fundamentally destabilize that and you say, look, with the web being out there, all of this content is available, half of it contradicts itself. And what we're saying is that we're going to have this discussion together and by the end of it, we're all going to know more about what's out there and we're going to be able to speak intelligently and make decisions about this. That's where the real openness is. Break the curriculum up, destabilize the hierarchy, and then people can actually learn and not just turn into robots who are subservient to the great powers that know things. So if, if you put a quick question in the chat, go ahead, please, Carol. Yeah, I just wanted to build on that. I was trying to type it in, but my typing's not that good. Um, I found with all of the participants, if you build a safe, and when I say safe environment, I mean one when folks are, where folks are not censured by facilitators or um, other participants, people have a tendency to be more open to learning, to bringing more learning into the, uh, when I say platform, I'm simply meaning the MOOC, into the MOOC experience. And I find that they, they get so much more out of it because they feel that it is a secure environment, that they're not being judged on how they're doing whatever it is they're doing. And I know um, CCK 11 and 12, Change 11, 12, and Plank 2010, which is where I started, have all supported that quote-unquote safe environment. And uh, I think that's one of the other keys to uh, expanding the learning rather than just rote memorization. We probably have time for one or two final thoughts. Is there anybody on the panel who wanted to say something that didn't get a chance to or a thought that was left unsaid? Then I'll grab the mic at once. <laughs> this has been really interesting for me, and in part because I recognize how hard it is, how much of this I wasn't fully aware of. I haven't actually participated in any of these CMOOCs myself. And even for somebody who's interested in learning, just sort of the, the breadth of and variety of experiences that I may not be fully aware of. And I'm trying to do an interview series on education on a pretty regular basis. So I'm um, fascinated by that and, and kind of smile at the moment. Dave said that somebody asked him if you'd ever heard of MOOCs. Um, yeah, I Yeah, I've had people inside the organization where I work send me information on this new trend. Well, I'll express my own personal appreciation to each of you, both for being here, but also for the compassionate way in which you think about education and try and model um, the, your own personal beliefs. I really appreciate it. And thanks for being here tonight. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Um, Tomorrow night, <laughs> you want a horse of a different color, come here, Thomas Vander, talk about getting smart. And thanks, everybody, for being here, and thanks to our panelists. Thanks, Steve. I appreciate the chance to uh, join you and everyone else in here. Thanks, Stephen, and thanks for the diagram. I think we'll be going back to that quite a bit.